You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book that you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Oh, and welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because we lost the war on Christmas. My name is Kevin, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Benedict, the Takeru Kobayashi of Bad Books. Benedict, <laughs> when I say Christmas cookie, what appears in your mind? Uh, like a, a, a Christmas tree-shaped sugar cookie. Ooh, type thing. You knew, I, thought, I thought you'd go for like a gingerbread cookie or something like that. Uh... Yeah, it just I seems more maybe, British to me, maybe. I think, is why I thought of that. Why? why? Sorry, you broke up for a second. <laughs> I think, I think uh, the gingerbread cookie just seems more British to me. Yeah, I guess maybe, yeah. I don't know. No, like a, like a sugar cookie, yep. with like, but Christmas tree shaped. That's know? basically the same thing I had in my mind. Like the Christmas tree or the snowman... It, it's really about the shapes. I mean, let's be, I think you and I are of a certain generation that grew yeah. up when grocery stores would have the mass-produced sugar cookies in the, yeah, the cellophane yeah. packaging, and that's that's our idea of what a cookie is, a Christmas cookie anyways. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously we don't, like in the UK, we don't have cookies in quite the same way, but so like I have this American, I think I'm it's sorry. an American biscuits. like Hollywood idea. Well, yeah, we do have biscuits, but I think I have this Hollywood idea of what a, a sugar cookie uh, or like what a Christmas cookie is that's based on like, you know, everyone doing their sugar cookie nonsense right before the holidays and sugar cookies are kind of easy to make and it's like a fun family decorating thing, you know? Yeah, So yeah, it makes sense to me. So when I, when I say Christmas pudding, what do you think? Mm, I think of uh, pudding. I think of pudding. I know what you're going <laughs> for. I know exactly yeah. what you're going for, like the the meat drippings thing. No, no, that that's a so that's a mince pie. Um, but that's not it's not a mince. So no, okay. So a Christmas pudding in the UK mm-hmm. is like uh, like really dense. Like I don't even know what it is. I guess it's some kind of dough. And then like uh, raisins, sultanas and stuff like that. And then we just pour like f- literally flaming brandy over the top of it. <laughs> and, like you have a brandy in a ladle, set it on fire and then pour it over the, the Christmas pudding because otherwise the Christmas pudding is inedible because it's literally a doorstop <laughs> of a cake. See, I was thinking of more like a popover type of thing. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. You yeah, know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like no, that's those... so that's like that's a that's a Yorkshire pudding, which is a different thing. Okay, so that's what I was thinking of when, when yeah, you said pudding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is yeah, no, this is at least has a liquid component. Yeah, yeah. It is the flaming brandy <laughs> okay. that is the liquid component of it. It's like a really, really dense like fruit cake. Basically, it has like the maraschino cherries type thing, and you have to get the... drunk in order to eat it. So I get it. Well, it makes sense. Yeah, that's. I mean, that is the same with most British food, as you can attest to. <laughs> yes, so. I can. <laughs> Anyways, this is the show where we dig down with the knife deep 
into the peanut butter jar of right-wing literature and books and bad stuff to try and find that last little bit at the bottom, but we can never quite get it because, like, you can't get the knife in the right angle and the tip shape of the knife isn't right. And there's just okay, there's just not enough Kevin, in the jar. Kevin, there was that's n- like we you're, bought you're the jar. About it was already people empty. Do. You're talking about something that people do because they love peanut butter. <laughs> I do not feel that way about what we read on a day to day basis. I would also like to apologize to the listeners that the episode is out late. That is my fault. I forgot to hit record yesterday, so I'm very sorry. And also you hear we have audio issues. There's all sorts of stuff going on right now. I had had a mic yesterday, I promise, but today I do not have the mic. (laughs) We're just a a train wreck of a show this the last couple weeks. It's mostly Um, me. Let's let's be honest with the listeners, Kevin. You can you cannot take the blame on this. This is mostly my fault. That's your Christmas gift to me, is taking blame (laughs) for everything. It's wonderful. It. I like it for once. Holding Good up your stuff. end of the your end of the bargain here. You know. uh, anyways, Benedict, do you have a hot take for us this week? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how hot it is. It's just that I don't think anyone should celebrate New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. I think it's a garbage thing that is basically pointless. It's it's been sold to us by big media as an important <laughs> it's event. Big calendar, it Benedict. Isn't. Big calendar. Exactly. Big calendar. Surely. Surely. Uh, yeah, so I just don't think anyone should celebrate it. Honestly, I think it's boring, and I, this isn't influenced by the fact that I didn't have any friends growing up and didn't go to go to fun parties <laughs> at all. Uh, I just think that no one should celebrate it. I think it's boring. And what about you? And I feel very, very sad for you. I'm, I'm very ah, sorry about that. Mine. Uh, and uh, you know, when we started doing these hot takes, it was always like, ah, it's a hot take, but it's like lukewarm. That's the joke. Um, yeah. This one, it's not even it's not even that vain because it's just a, a complete truism. Um, and it's that Amazon uses way too much fucking packaging. Oh, that is true. Good yeah, God. I, I don't need an enormous box for the garlic crusher I bought. <laughs> <laughs> like, did you buy a garlic crusher there? They're good, right? I actually did. I actually did. Yeah, they're good. I already, they're good. I already have one, but this one, uh, well, my, my girlfriend already knows she's getting it. Uh, this was a gift for my girlfriend because Aww, we cute. recently got obsessed uh, with the old show. It's no, not, not, not an old show, but it's not anymore. Uh, Cutthroat Kitchen, which used to be on the Food <laughs> Network with uh, Alton Brown. Um, and there was, we were just watching one day, and there was an episode with a garlic crusher. And she was like, I wish I had a garlic crusher. So... You now Everyone you do. Everyone should have a garlic crusher. That <laughs> is that is a good move. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's just an insane amount of packaging. Because right, I've been getting stuff delivered uh, all throughout the holidays, and uh, you know, think people have been sending me stuff. You sent me a wonderful gift. It was lovely. Oh. Uh, and uh, you know, there's, a, there's just there's just an overwhelming amount of packaging. And even though the trash room is just down the hall from my apartment, I am far too lazy to just constantly go back and forth with the massive pile of boxes I now have in my apartment. So they're going to be stacked yeah, up for about I mean, a week now. It, it, beyond, beyond just the trash, it's just a huge waste environmentally. Absolutely! Like. Absolutely! Yeah. But don't discount my laziness as a component of it as well. <laughs> I will not. Anyways, Ben, what do you got for us on your bookshelf this week? On my bookshelf this week, I actually have a whole author to recommend, uh, who is Lisa C., who is a uh, historical fiction writer who writes a lot about um, various East Asian countries. So she wrote a, a book called The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, which I think is about China um, that my wife's reading at the moment. And then I'm reading a book of hers called The Island of Sea Women, which is about Jiju. Um, it's, 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 it's about a lot of women uh, people don't like. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> All living uh, together on an island. Well, it's better than the alternate, which is The Island of Sea Men, which... Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I think Which nobody I, wants. I think maybe they had they had a workshop uh, on the title there when they were <laughs> workshop the title. Yeah. But it's about so uh, Jeju, which is an island off Korea, um, South Korea, and um, basically they have this culture, or or the book has it, uh, this culture of like women that go like free diving basically nice. for fishing and and getting like sea cucumbers and, mm-hmm. and stuff and then selling it. Um, it's just a really interesting piece of history and historical fiction that is quite approachable It's you know i'm a big fan of historical fiction just because it means you can learn some history without having to open a, a textbook of history you know laziness um, well you know i also read the history books but i think it's a, it's a good primer <laughs> for people to to get interested in history, i know what so. you mean i know what you mean yeah 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 all right. So anyway, Lisa C. She's a very good writer. What about you? What's on your bookshelf? On my bookshelf this week, um, I my listeners are well aware of my love of comic books. Um, you know, Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, all the the US stuff generally. I recently made the decision to start reading uh, manga, which I had mm. never really gotten into in the past. I had read a little bit, like I'd read uh, Alita: Battle Angel when the the movie came out uh, a couple years ago, which I thought was pretty good. Um, mm. But then I, you know, I decided I'm going to start reading some of this because there's some there's some really incredible artists uh, doing manga, um, and it's a different art form, and it's uh, uh, there's some really great stuff out there. So I read recently, and I have to highly recommend because it's an outstanding series, uh, Attack on Titan, um, okay. which is uh, science fiction uh, fantasy uh, type work about a. Uh, Alternate Earth, different timeline where there are uh, there's a giant city with walls around it, like giant, you know, massive, um, and uh, there are a bunch of giants outside those walls who attack and eat people. Um, oh. It sounds very simplistic, but it's it gets much deeper than that. There's a whole mystery about where they come from and what this society is about. It's very interesting, and I'm very into all that kind of stuff where where you know the stories are building a world, and I'm very interested yeah. in the worlds that they're building. Uh, and all you know, on top of all that, the artwork, the artwork is fantastic and it's beautiful. There's also, if you don't want to read anything, there's an anime that was made about it, which is uh, I think on Netflix and Hulu and all that kind of stuff. So check it out. I'm sure some of our listeners already know that like <laughs> this is 2020 and you're just reading Attack on Titan. What are you thinking, Kevin? Uh, <laughs> but uh, I loved it. I thought it was outstanding, and uh, everybody should give it a check out. Yeah, I uh, it sounds good. I, I recently signed up for finally after like humming and hawing for ages for the Criterion channel, you know, <laughs> that has all the the old old yeah, movies yeah. and the the like international movies. And I I've discovered discovered in heavy air right. quotes. Uh, Kurosawa discovered in the the same way Columbus discovered America yeah (laughs) exactly exactly the the, like the maybe the most famous Japanese film director (laughs) ever Seven Samurai baby I'm all about it all about it (laughs) well I'd say yeah Rashomon and and things like that so anyway I would also recommend that it's not a bookshelf it's a tv guide but absolutely check it out that's also wonderful stuff Anyways, housekeeping this week, not much. Uh, you know, remember to rate and review us on iTunes. I say that every week. Nobody ever does it. Uh, if all of our listeners would do it, we'd have a hell of a lot more reviews. It'd be nice if you could go over there on iTunes and uh, hit the five star, leave us a review. It'd be wonderful. Uh, follow us on all the social medias at NYGBCPod on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, and uh, we have, of course, as we mentioned on the last show, we're going to be reviewing Dinesh D'Souza's newest documentary coming up in the new year. So probably January or February when we're going to get that out. Uh, so we're really excited for that. That's to make up for that episode we missed a couple weeks ago. We're really excited about that. And we have uh, an old friend of the show who's been on before, who we love as one of our favorites, is going to be doing with us. I just talked to her early today. So I'm excited for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. 
And with that out of the way, we return to our book review of The Right Ugh. Side of History by Ben Shapiro, voted most likely to be stuffed into a locker at 55 by his high school graduating class. <laughs> Benedict, what do we read this week? Well, Kevin, this week we read Chapter 8, After the Fire, in which Ben hates everyone he hasn't already hated up to this point in the book. And this some really people he's already completes, hated. <laughs> completes the circle, not circle, the timeline yeah. of Ben being like, these are the people I hate from this era that you love. These are the people I yeah. hate from this era that you love. These are the people I hate from this era that you love. And now we're up pretty much to the present day. Yeah, basically. And I have to say, now that you mention it, it is a pretty good summary of the entire book. Ben lists all the people <laughs> he hates like that really yeah, is I haven't a good... thought of it it's like the people I hate from the French Revolution the people I hate from the Enlightenment because the people I hate from Greco-Roman he history. really hasn't spent much time at all talking about anyone that he likes and the things he supports no. just shitting no. on everyone he hates that's all he which does which is I mean it is the classic approach isn't it it's the grievance approach yes. of like I don't like this idea and therefore I'm going to critique it without offering a reasonable alternative which is essentially Republican politics for the last of course yeah there's no difference uh, I would also say it's the chapter in which Ben commits the logical fallacies he says someone else does within mm. a paragraph of yep. having said that, Loves to which do is that. outstanding. Uh, do you have an that. alternate chapter title for us this week? I, it's a very simple one. It's just, I hate new atheism. Yeah. Very simple. It's very true. One. He goes back in it. We talked about it a couple chapters ago. He started listing some of them. He goes back to it at the end of this chapter because, of course, he has <laughs> By to. the way, I also don't love Stephen Pinker. So, <laughs> you know, Ben and I have some common ground there. I think he's interesting, right? He's definitely yeah, an interesting sure. guy, but I, I don't have any special feelings about him one way or another. I don't he's think I know enough IDWA about him. For my yeah, I don't think I know enough about him to hate him. I have no idea. Uh, but my alternate chapter titles this week, I have two. Uh, first one, Polemics for Dummies. <laughs> Wonderful. And uh, the second, uh, again, I, I liked the sing-songy thing I did last week, so this is another one of those, and it's Kierkegaard didn't start the fire. It was always burning. <laughs> is that uh That's good. It's a nice a nice little call back to the real title, which is after the fire. Absolutely. Like Absolutely because he has a little timeline difficulty here when he starts talking about uh some of the newer philosophies he gets into in the beginning of this chapter. Yeah. So we start off with Ben telling us, quote the world survived World War II, of course. <laughs> Barely. Not only did the West survive, it got freer, richer, more prosperous than ever. Human wealth expanded exponentially, lifespans increased. Those are all separate sentences where I paused. <laughs> he could have thrown yeah, in a it's, comma it's and fun, an and it? in there, but he did yeah. separate sentences. No. No, he's, again, it's that style of writing where he's like, I'm going to make a point by putting a period in for no reason. Yes. Um... It's interesting, you know, again, the definition of the West shifts mm -hmm. to being, like, things that I agree with. Because, like, again, I mean, do, do we include Latin America in this? I'm not sure they got freer necessarily in the post-World War II era. Right. Do we include East Germany, which, <laughs> by all definitions, in the West... You know, it really it doesn't engage well, but, with the Cold War at all. But remember, really. he has I mean, sort of singled out Europe in this point as not part yeah, of his real like conception of, of the West. Half of Germany, <laughs> half of Europe, half of Europe was under the banner of the USSR yeah. <laughs> until the nineties. So. Right, but I think he wants because we we spent a couple chapters where he was talking about all the philosophy going on in the Enlightenment and later periods, and he wanted to single out those 
Europeans, who he didn't like, and separate them somehow from everything that was going on in the true West, the United mm. States, in his in his. Okay, mind. so but that's it again. We're not including Latin America in that, right. then presumably. Yeah. And, and I, I would just go back to I think I talked about this in an early chapter where I literally had a class when I was in undergrad, uh, which was called Western Civil History of Western Civilizations, yeah, and yeah, the professor too. defined Western civilizations as everything that isn't East. And he, he yeah, made that purpose. No, he, he did it in a way where he was trying to show that it's sort of ridiculous to say Western civilization is a thing. But his definition was more the the moving of the areas of thought throughout the region mm. that eventually ended up being, you know, Europe, the United States and those sorts of areas. So right from and I think Ben would agree with a lot of what that professor had to say. Where that professor I had was saying generally starting with ancient Greece and moving on through Rome and then into the Middle East and then into Europe during the Enlightenment period, that was sort of the shift that he outlined um, in that class. And it was interesting. I don't think there's – I think it's another case of us trying to come up with arbitrary categories so Mm. we can more easily handle topics Um, and, of course, trying to separate people we don't like from everyone we like. Mm-hmm. And pretending that there was no mixing of those thoughts from people we don't like with the stuff that we do like. But of course there was. So by the end of World War II, according to Ben, European optimism was dead, buried under six feet of human ash. And he continues, quote, The philosophies of the Europeans, enlightenment ideals about the value of human beings and the need to move beyond God or Greek teleology had ended in tragedy. Hitler claimed ideological forebears in Kant, Hegel, and Nietzsche. Damn it, I pronounced it right that time. I'm so mad at myself. <laughs> Stalin took his cues from Marx. The eugenicists took their ideas from Darwin and Comte. The post lock Enlightenment project had been a Tower of Babel with oh, the common goal so of supplanting reason for religion rather than seeking the congruence of the two. That's why the, the Nazis had the Gott mit uns yes. on their... Yes. <laughs> oh, was that World War One or World War Two? I forget. Maybe it was World War One. No, that was World, was World War II. That was the Nazi oh, belt buckles. You're right. Oh, good. You're, good. you're right about that. That's definitely 100% true. Yeah, uh, definitely Definitely, the Pope didn't send Hitler happy birthday messages right up till the end there either. Right. And also fascism isn't a Catholic philosophy. Right, and we've, we've of course... Catholic tradition. We've of course talked about all this in the previous chapters. He's just... Yeah, this it's, is, a, as it's I, a snowball of inferences. It's the Hooray. snow... Yes, I was about to say, this is the snowball of inferences now congealed. Everything he said in the previous chapters has been proven true... And by this point, the penultimate chapter, we now accept it all as fact and move on. And we're going to be talking in this chapter about much more modern ideas. So he starts mm. us off in this chapter with existentialism. Kierkegaard! Kierkegaard! Yay. 1813 to 1855, he conveniently tells us. I do sort of like that he puts in the time period there, even though it doesn't matter to me. I could just Google it. Um, but of course, his Very listeners- short life, Kierkegaard. What happened to him? I don't know. Do you want me to figure out how Kierkegaard died? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Google it while you talk. Strung up by his guts in some sort of weird uh, Victorian era. I don't know. When was the Victorian era? I have no idea, to be 1837 to 1901. Boom, baby! Uh, even though he wasn't from the United Kingdom, uh, he Not was Danish. All. But, you know, yeah, same sort of area. But you know we love to uh, view everything through an English lens. Right, and I'm just predicting some sort of medieval uh, gross torture thing happened there. That's just what I'm going to go with. Pro- it was probably syphilis, but uh, let's just say it was it was what i think it is was it syphilis tell me it was syphilis baby come on it was uh pot disease a form of tuberculosis pot disease pot disease pot disease p-o-t disease 
P-O-T-T. Okay, double so double T. So that's the extra strength pot. Uh, okay, mm. that makes sense to me. Some sort of weird disease. It was either going to be a weird disease or some sort of uh, weird torture. It was going to be one of those two. I mean, that is most of history, right? Yes. That's... <laughs> so Ben is going to lay out basically just some basic Kierkegaard stuff uh, ex- about existentialism. And it doesn't really matter much because he's going to shift um, pretty soon in this chapter to saying fuck existentialism um, mm-hmm. and doesn't want to deal with it anymore. But basically, Kierkegaard saying that uh, human beings had to find meaning by looking within. You can't find meaning from without because it doesn't make sense to look to the world to find meaning, so you got to look within yourself. Yeah, not an unreasonable thing to suggest, I would say. I would say the most reasonable thing to suggest. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, this takes away from Ben Shapiro's... God. Uh, yeah. God, his God, of course, it just takes away from his God, his idea that everything has to come through revelation as far as meaning, right? And he has thrown in this, his stuff about reason being a part of it. He has never, for me, tied together, even in his framework, how reason has anything to do with his idea of what morals are, since Ben thinks morals come from God. Yeah, not at all. He hasn't engaged with how the two interact at all, really. No. So, uh, according to Ben Shapiro, uh, Kierkegaard... Uh, or, or maybe we're on Heidegger now? No, we're on Heidegger. So we, he does about a page on Kierkegaard. I didn't read any of it to you because it wasn't very important. And then he goes to Heidegger, uh, the German philosopher. So, I mean, he, he starts talking about how all knowledge is interpretation of the truth. And it, it's this stuff about subjective versus objective right. truth, isn't it? That that the IDW hates, mm-hmm. but is actually super interesting if you think about it in a meaningful way. <laughs> oh, and when we get, I, I don't know about you, I took a peek at the last chapter, and uh, we are going to be getting into a little bit of uh, that kind of stuff again. Because, a little bit of 2 plus 2 equals 5, yeah. love that, love that. Yep, it's going to be a whole lot of fun. Uh, we should have Aaron back on. <laughs> <laughs> but after that, I don't know, two paragraphs on Heidegger. Literally. Uh, we get Heidegger to, and Jaspers. We get to the true evil, Jean-Paul mm. Sartre. I mean, he is French. So. Yeah, of course. What, what, is there any more evil than a Frenchman? Um, the committed Marxist, of course. And yeah, Sartre was uh, very much a socialist. Uh, he supported the Soviet Union, uh, not in its deeds, but in its intentions. And he wrote extensively on how the failure of the Soviet Union was to not live up to uh, the intentions of the revolution. And I don't, mm. I don't think even Ben would disagree with that. Because the intentions of no, the revolution, you can't disagree with, right? No, no people, they, people do disagree with that, Kevin. You, you are precisely wrong on that. And people do think sure. that it's an evilly intentioned revolution. Sure. Uh, but, I, you know, Sartre had a lot of very interesting things to say about the Soviet Union, none of which he's going to talk about. He's going to skip right over after labeling him a, uh, a Marxist and communist. Yeah. Uh, because, of course, his audience is going to read that and go, oh, this evil motherfucker. Well, look, if you, and genuinely, if you were doing an interesting comparison, you could compare someone like Sartre, who thought of the USSR as having good ideals but failing to live up to them, to people that criticized the United States for the same thing, right? right. Like, that is an interesting comparison to draw. Absolutely. It's absolutely a good comparison to draw. And the fact that he doesn't deal with that at all makes me think that he knew it was too difficult to overcome when he is constantly (laughs) criticizing the left for ever mentioning slavery. So uh, he goes into a little bit of what Sartre had to say about morality and how there's, you know, no proof that we can we can't find good 
um, by looking at the world, which goes back to the existentialist, right? Sartre is... He also, yeah, he, he does like the... Sartre's probably right about this, but it makes me sad to think about it that way, so I refuse to think yes, about it that yes. way. Yes, like, yes! He has a huge block quote. Block quote. Uh, block quote. Quote. Block quote. Block quote. Block, block quote. quote. Wow, I can't talk today. Uh, from one of Sartre's works, and then says about it, quote, This is a beautifully expressed idea, an idea replete with the tragedy of existence, but hopeful about man's possibility of reaching within himself for something higher. But it also leaves human beings without a guidepost. It promises no communal purpose or communal capacity. It focuses almost entirely on the individual, but leaves individuals without any guide other than the guide within. To which... Well, so, uh, the, 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 the block quote, just to say quickly, is like, it's about... Say, Sartre is basically saying... There is no objective good. We have to define what good is mm-hmm. and try and live up to it. Yeah. Right. That's what the block quote says, which is a lovely idea. It means we can fail. But again, like the guidepost, what, what's Ben's guidepost? The, the barbaric. Benny needs his handheld. He exactly. needs his handheld to deal with finding out what what moral truths are and what the guideposts are. Turning turning people into pillars of salt because they look the wrong way. Yeah. Like what? Yeah. What is what is morality really like? Right. <laughs> he just wants to look. He just wants to look at the Bible. That's all he wants. Because again, he he keeps talking about reason, but he will always go back to the moral authority has to be delivered from God, and he will not address the fact that you know obviously the Bible has bad things in it. Mm-hmm. He just, just, he just can't. Yeah, it's it, it's funny. He nitpicks about everything, literally everything, and doesn't nitpick about anything that he thinks is good. He doesn't engage with like, oh, the Bible says this. This is clearly bad. We should ignore that bit of it. Right. But he loves he loves to find bits from the people he's criticizing. You know, it's 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 high school debate, right? Like that. That's what this is. Right. And he, you know, I love the fact that the Bible has horse dick jokes. It's great. There's a, there's a horse dick <laughs> joke the- in there. There's a great horse dick joke in there, but uh, he doesn't want to talk about that at all. So I guess we'll have to move on to the next <laughs> subsection, the first subsection of the chapter, really, which is entitled The New, scare quotes, Natural Law. Natural Law. And so he's going to take us here uh, through what, you know, we're post-World War II at this point in our time frame. And according to Ben, as we've covered a little bit previously, uh, everything that led up to World War One, World War II, that was all because of the idea of scientific government. That's what it was all about. And scientific government gave us those wars. The specter of centralized, tyrannical government is the quote that he uses, um, which is, is fantastic, I think. And according to Ben, this is all because the focus of science had shifted. In his mm. mind, science, as it had begun with Francis Bacon, which I suppose, given the way he's talked about it, the way we've, we've read going through this book, he thinks that science never should have progressed past Francis Bacon. Yeah, that's it. That's, I have to well, assume. I mean, sci- science is, okay, not to get all classical here, but science is just the Latin for knowledge, right? It's the pursuit of knowledge. So, I mean, science became more, mathematic, more mathematical and, and trying to find formulas for things, formulae for things, and less focused around, I have a hunch, right? Right, like, right. So... Yeah, and, and and that happened around the time of, uh, that philosophy and science begins to diverge a bit post Greek. I mean, obviously the Greeks had you know the Pythagorean philo- science and stuff, but I mean it. it, it I think he wants philosophy a world... and science separate he... as we beca- begin to become more mathematical. Yes, again. I think he wants a world where philosophy, by which he means mainly religion, can trump science. Where yeah. if science says a thing is true, philosophy can come in and say, "No, my book says it's not true." 
right? Yeah. I, I think that's the world he wants. Or my teacher. My teacher says it's not true. Right, right, exactly. My, my dad's bigger than your dad. <laughs> my dad can beat up your dad. Let's have our dads fight. Oh, I feel bad now. Um, <laughs> but but that's the word. we're not going to explain that joke to the audience <laughs> at all. It's just going to hang there. Nope. And Carry on. That one's just for me and you. That one's just for <laughs> me and you, buddy. Don't worry about uh, it. Let's go. But according to Ben, of course, Western thought had relied on natural law. For the entirety of its existence, Western thought had relied on natural law, even though he has spent chapters in this book talking about people who, who didn't believe in natural law. But, of course, those are cast aside because they don't fit the, pr- the framework that he wants to talk mm, about. Interesting. He does say, quote, What we ought to do was inherent in what is. A hammer was made for hammering, a pen for writing, a human for reasoning. Human beings could reason about... A human for humaning. That's how that works. (laughs) Right. Human beings could reason about the good and then shape the world around them to achieve it. And I do want to say about that humans for reasoning. Remember, that goes back to him saying that the unique thing that humans can do is to reason. So humans Mm. are for reasoning. I would also say, Ben, the other unique things that human can do is uh, have sex facing each other. So apparently that is... (laughs) Another one of the human purposes. We should just do all the time. We, well, I don't know. Sometimes you don't want to do it that way. We'll, <laughs> we, we'll talk about this off the air. Let me, I got. Yeah, yeah, I have some diagrams good. I can show you that <laughs> give you a few more ideas about how this thing can work. Stuff. Uh, good stuff. But he says, quote, the first serious advocate of the position that human beings were no longer rational free actors came from Sigmund Freud, 1856 to 1939. Again, not exactly a hero of the left. <laughs> no, like, not at all. <laughs> Like a known charlatan, right? Like that everybody, kn- everybody like, knows. And he's like, Freud was a charlatan, as if that's news <laughs> to us as readers. Like, yes, he was. That is widely known amongst the psychological. Community. I did really love that, especially because right, my girlfriend is a social worker, so she had a you know she has a master's in social work. Um, she had mm. a lot of study in psychology and and clinical uh, uh, treatment and things like that. And so I haven't had the discussion about about this with her, but I'm sure now that I've said it on the show, um, she's going to bring it up next time we hang out. And I hopefully, I'm really hoping that she agrees with the Freud is a, a crack uh, pot part of it. But uh, well, I mean, my, my wife majored in psychology and she does yeah. agree with that. So. I do think most people these days, I think the people who you get who believe in Freud are people who like a, a community college psychology degree and now we're doing like it's family people, counseling. It's, let's, let's not even belittle it like yeah. that. It's just the first, it's it's like the first thing that people, it's right. the first interaction a lot of people have with psychology. Right. Because he, he's a famous dude who did psychology. Right. Like that's just. He is the know. father of psychology. Most of the shit he said was wrong. Almost all yeah. of it. I can't think of anything he said that was but right. He had but he had to, he had to be wrong for people to be like, no, that's wrong. Right. Exactly. That's the right? point. Someone has to do that. That's the point. And that goes back to Ben. All the people Ben admires, the people who were wrong, they had to be wrong so other people could come along and say, no, that's wrong and have yeah. the right answer. Let's iterate it and get something good out of this. Like, and that, that's literally the scientific method. Yeah. Right? Like doing shit wrong and then repeating it until it's right is science. Right. Right. So he talks a little bit about Freud and all of Freud's weird sexual stuff, right? That was that yep. was what we most know Freud for these days, because that's you know, that's the interesting stuff, really. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Exactly. As you know. Unless it's a big black dick. Uh <laughs> But then it's not a cigar. <laughs> then it's not a cigar. Then it's not a cigar. Uh, and then he steps right from Floyd. Freud, uh, not Pink Floyd. Freud. Pink I can't Floyd. talk today. I don't know why. You're, yeah, struggling. But you know, uh, to Alfred Kinsey, 
1894 to 1956. I will always read those when he puts in the the days they lived, just because I want to. Um, And of course, Kinsey, if you don't know who he is, um, was a little bit of a crackpot, but a much more rigorous crackpot um, (laughs) than a lot of people. He at least documented what the weird shit he was doing was, right? right? Like that's the. So in the 40s, Kinsey put out a couple of really groundbreaking books for the time about sexual behavior in the population. And today, people look at it and go, "Okay, his." His uh, methodology was really flawed. Who, where in his sample sizes and who he was sample sampling from, yeah, right? Yeah. And getting a representative sample, he had some serious problems with that. But he did put out some very interesting work um, that still, you know, provides a, a some sort of window into a certain population at the time and their sexual habits. And he did, mm. um, right? Even if his numbers were off, certainly they were, right? Um, he did reveal that certainly far more sexual activity was going on than anyone wanted to admit. Society was more promiscuous than anyone wanted to admit. Absolutely. Right? That's, the, that's the thing. Which has always been true, right? I mean, you, you look back at any period of history, like, our generation is probably having less sex than anyone ever. Well, that's right? just COVID like, that's... talking, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but to, to counter Kinsey, uh, he has a quote from journalist Sue Ellen Browder. Ah, good. You know how I like to put, pull up uh, random sources that uh, right-wing authors will put in their books? Um, unfortunately, I couldn't find much on her because she doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. I could find mm-hmm. that apparently she was previously a writer at Cosmo, uh, like back oh, in weird. the 70s, 80s, I think, uh, maybe a little earlier than that. Um, and she at one point uh, apparently went batshit crazy and now does exclusively anti-abortion work. So oh, that's uh, the kind of person we're talking. And not to belittle anyone who works for Cosmo, right? There are legitimate journalists who work for Cosmo. Yeah, but anyone that was a journalist in the 70s, you have to look twice right, at. You know, right, right. Why, why were you doing this? Was it just for the liquid lunches <laughs> and so that you could be misogynistic or like what's the... Well, this is a woman we're talking about, right? I know, right. I know, I know. But, but, but you know, uh, given the, the path she took after Women that... Women can be misogynistic. Yes, they can. And this one certainly is. Um, uh, one of her books that I found, I don't remember the title off the top of my head, but it was something like how I helped uh, ruin the feminist movement or something like that. Or how derail. I helped the sexual revolution hijack. The yes, that's movement. it. That's the one. You found it. I'm glad yep. you found it. She also has a love will end abortion. Yes. Yep. That was now. that was the so one I found good. where I yep, was able to figure stuff. out who she was. So that's good the kind of people stuff. he uses as sources. It's always lovely to look up uh, those famed people. famed philosopher. Right. So right. Ellen Brown. I like. But he says uh, about Kinsey going back to him. Quote. But the reality of Kinsey's methodology mattered less than his implicit promise. Human beings could be bettered by casting aside the vestiges of the old morality. And the best news of all was this. It was all natural. Sure. It, I mean, yeah, it was. There's yeah. People fuck, Ben. I, I mean, look, I know we, we have over... We've gone back too many times to the well uh, with, with WAP and Benny. Um, <laughs> I think there's only so many times you can do that. It does get stale after a while. You got to drain the well, refill it. Uh, But, you know, I think Ben doesn't have the most active sex life of anyone that I know. Uh, So I'm just going to I'm just going to say maybe he needs to like I'll send him the diagrams. That's what I'll do. Yeah, yeah, you should CC him. Yep, yep. Oh, so you you do want the diagrams? Is that what you're saying? No, not over email. Okay. Maybe like they are some other they are way. very graphic sketches. Very okay. graphic sketches, but ta- but tasteful, but very tasteful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and the next person he's going to get to is E. O. Wilson, um, who he just keeps coming back to this chapter. Right. 
He, like, finds one thing, one dude he doesn't like, and then is like, well, I don't like E.O. Wilson's take on this, so I'm going to keep coming back to it and not engage with any of the other writers on this. Right, and E.O. Wilson, um, who is still alive, by the way, uh, his position was basically, you know, the evolutionary psychology position. I think he was, he wasn't, he wasn't the beginning of evolutionary psychology, but he was certain, and is certainly, since he's still alive, influential a though, very yeah. influential voice in evolutionary psychology. Um, so, yeah, that's like, he's... Benny has a bone to pick with evolutionary psych. Great. Um, he can't dispute any of it. Just evolution in general. And he were to read an evolutionary psych paper in a journal, he would go, what the fuck am I reading? But sure, let's sit here and shit on it for a couple of pages where you don't understand Fine. it. Um, so we get to the next subsection of this chapter, which is titled The Neo-Enlightenment. And this mm. is where we, we're now sort of past uh, what we were talking about before with, with uh, Sartre and all of them. We're sort of past existentialism, and we're now on a, a different, sort of similar uh, but different train of thought stuff. with this neo-enlightenment. And this is not a term I was able to find very much about. Uh, there's some it's, people who it's refer... It's new atheism, basically. I right. mean, it's Pinker, right? It's, it's, it's embodied by people like Stephen Pinker and... I would imagine, again, like, it doesn't engage with the smartest people in the movement. No. So people like Stephen Jay Gould is who I'd imagine he's referring to here. But, but he again, doesn't want to deal with actually... any Stephen Jay Gould because that dude, fuck, he could write. Yeah. That dude could fucking write. It's the thing. Like, he, he, like, he takes, like, secondary people from the movement, like Pinker, when he, what, you know, he... He strawmans people by picking the people with the weaker arguments, like, and not engaging with Gould and, and others. Right, and that's, that's, I mean, we've talked about before, he strawmans every single philosopher or individual that he brings up. That's the only way he can reach the conclusions that he wants. But he's yeah. still on E.O. Wilson, even though he's gone from that old section to this new subsection. He's still talking about E.O. Wilson here in the beginning of it. And he says, quote, Wilson rejects Aquinas and Kant. He rejects any attempt to create purpose or meaning on the back of transcendent and eternal values, which those transcendent and eternal values, of course, are Benny's religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. He says instead, quote, Wilson proposes a new sort of faith, faith in science. Now, we could easily ask at this point whether faith in science was not the faith that brought us eugenics and central planning. Oh, God. <laughs> okay. So I don't know if we've we've hit on this point uh, specifically in the past, but you don't have faith in science, right? So, no, science is replicable. Right, it's either correct right. or not. You don't have faith in science. That's a nonsense I, phrase. I, I, okay, the, the only way one can have faith in science is faith in the human beings that are performing Right, faith that people right? aren't so lying you, to you. You take scientists' word as given. Right, right? in the That's broadest the sense of the like, word faith. Hey, I did this experiment where I sent a photon at the speed of light crashing into something. And you're like, okay, I can't replicate that, but I believe that you did it. Like, yes, that's yeah. And so, so faith in scientists rather than faith in sciences. Yeah. So drawing out a little bit more of what he has to say about E.O. Wilson, E.O. Wilson's argument, right? E.O. Wilson uh, basically saying that um, the empiricist point of view, which is what Wilson says he he holds, um, is that the value of ethical systems are in the success of those systems. Right. And so that's a different way of looking. And again, he's posited a whole bunch of different ideas that people have put forward about ethical systems and mm. failed at knocking them down, of course, because they all are different than his. That's the only reason he needs to knock them down. They don't fit the bullshit framework he came up with, which only his form fulfills. So, of course, none of them will be successful in his eyes. But we get to a portion of this chapter where I stopped, laughed out loud, <laughs> um, and, and went back to my day just gloriously happy. Uh, because... 
I'm just going to read this, this block quote uh, in its entirety because it's, it's wonderful. But what about the fact that awful ethical systems have dominated throughout human history? What about the fact that billions live under tyranny or that religious bigotry that alienated Wilson from the church originally now <laughs> thrives across the globe? What about the fact that instead of the world gradually surrendering to the beauties of transnational liberalism, as Francis Fukuyama suggested it would, clashes of civilization have broken out anew in accordance with the theories of Samuel Huntington? I fucking love that <laughs> so much. And I think I've talked about Samuel Huntington in the past, but Samuel Huntington is a crackpot historian. It's the Clash of Civilizations Yes, guy, he wrote right? the That's, book. His book yeah. is called Clash of Civilizations. Um, no political scientist takes it seriously. It's literally a joke. It's a punchline because none of his, uh, if you take it as true, the things that would be happening um, haven't happened. Right, things like clashes where you see, uh, uh, you know, countries with different religions uh, next to each other, and it's a ridiculous kind of also, by the way, problematic for the theory that religion provides us with a moral framework yes. that would lead to that not happening. Yes, is it assumes only one religion in the world, which is just frankly implausible. It assumes that cultures, as he defines them, which right basically is countries. Um, are homogenous, and so that inside of a Muslim country, you have Muslims, and people all have the same values, and those values are so different from the values of, say, Christian countries that are near them that they have they can't do anything but fight. Are we, That's all they can do. Are we do. sure that Ben doesn't want that to be the case? I mean, I'm pretty sure Ben would love that. But uh, one of my favorite, and you know, it's, so this is a book I had to read in undergrad at UC Berkeley. I had to read Clash of Civilizations. It's one of those books you read not because it's uh, important. It's one of those books you read for the criticism of it and learning, like. Freud. Yeah, it's one of those things you read to learn how to do political science right and how to do it wrong. And when you're studying things like how to prove your argument, you read Clash of Civilizations and go, okay, this is how you don't do it. Um, so it's very interesting. But I just wanted to read one of my favorite criticisms of Clash of Civilizations, which has stuck with me forever. Um, and this is from Paul Musgrave, who's a very, very uh, um, influential political scientist and international relations scholar, who said, quote, Clash of Civilizations enjoys great cachet among the sort of policymaker who enjoys name-dropping Sun Tzu, but few specialists in international relations rely on it or even cite it approvingly. Bluntly, Clash has not proven to be useful or accurate guide to understanding the world. And, I mean, that's just, that is the <laughs> academic version of a bitch slap. It is, yeah. People who Love like that. to name drop Sun Tzu. That's exactly what that is. And it's just so delicious. <laughs> so we know that Ben believes, I think we can imply from what he says, that Ben believes Clash of Civilizations to be true, which I don't find too surprising given his look of the world and his intense mm -hmm. hatred of Muslims. Yeah, it fits it. Because, because the other problem with Samuel Huntington is he undeniably hates Muslims. Um, he has a, he's a very, very, his whole philosophy is intensely racist and basically mm. blames Muslims for wars, right? That's, it's, it's, it's very, it's very bad. It's a whole lot of problems. Mm -hmm. But we continue on and he, Rent, he's still on E.O. Wilson and we're, we've been I on know, him for it's, I told you, now. he keeps coming back to him and like not really saying anything new. It's very boring. Right. So, you know, about a page later, he says, according to Wilson, the evolution of human morality is not about human beings working to better the world, but about human beings acting as agents of information integration who spit out updated morals on a regular basis. Morality becomes an ensemble of many algorithms whose interlocking activities guide the mind across a landscape of nuanced moods and choices. 
which I think mm. actually is a pretty good description of what I would say my argument about where morals come from is, right? I've talked before during this book review that morals are synthesized from the society and through people, yeah. you know, bringing different modes of thought together and eventually something does get, like it says there, spit out uh, with an updated system of morals, right? And Which, by the way, is what the Ten Commandments are. Absolutely, absolutely, right? I've said many times that religion doesn't create morals. It takes them from the society that that religion comes from. Yes, exactly. exactly. It reflects them, doesn't create them. Uh, So I just find that to be, be, I I actually really like that definition. Ironic, yeah. It's a good definition. And applies to every moral framework, pretty much, that has existed ever. Yeah, and so uh, I think the the rest of the E.O. Wilson stuff, I would just summarize as Ben writing that uh, E.O. Wilson doesn't follow his straw man of E.O. Wilson's argument so he must be wrong and a hypocrite. That's uh, that's about all you need for the rest of the E.O. Wilson portion of this yep. chapter. And then Pinker. And then Stephen Pinker, right? The new neo-enlightenment thinkers. And I think I think you're right. He does mean new atheist when he says neo-enlightenment. Yeah. Because all the only people he talks about for the rest of the chapter are basically the new atheists. So uh, Stephen Pinker is a Harvard psychologist. Uh, he has some interesting things to say based on what, you know, the little bit of research I did. I've heard of him before in the past, but I never spent a lot of time looking into him um, because I have very little interest in psychology whatsoever. Um, but he says about him, about Pinker, Ben says, quote, uh, but Pinker does cheat just a bit. Most obviously, he seems to endorse, endorse versions of will and truth that science can't justify. These versions sprang from a Judeo-Christian tradition he rejects. He simultaneously embraces Enlightenment ideas that have Judeo-Christian roots and chops off those roots. Pinker treats the Enlightenment as a significant break from the thought that preceded it. Preceded it. That's not true, as we've seen. Mm. It's lovely, but I think, because for one thing there, He's saying that science can't justify, and this is Ben's version of science, can't Mm. justify. And we did skip over a a little bit of the previous pages where he was going into sort of the the free will argument, um, you know, the lack of free will, that sort of stuff. Um, And so I think that's what he's getting at there, is that since Pinker says, right, we can create moral systems, that doesn't make sense since Pinker's a scientist and science, according to Ben, doesn't believe in free will, ignoring Mm. that there are plenty of people in science who do believe in free will. Whether you think they're right or wrong, it doesn't matter. There are plenty of areas of science that believe in free will. So, or different variations of free will or have different definitions for what free will is for the purpose Mm. of whatever they're talking about. Um, It doesn't matter to me. It's not very interesting. I did find fun, though, where he says, quote, More important, however, Pinker never explains why reason ought to triumph. He assumes as self-evident the idea that material gain is the highest priority. He writes that human progress requires only the convictions that life is better than death, health is better than sickness, abundance is better than want, freedom is better than coercion, happiness is better than suffering, and knowledge is better than superstition and ignorance. Ben then says, that was, that was a quote from Pinker, but then Ben mm. says, This is circular reasoning. If you assume that Pinker is right, it turns out that Pinker is right. But he isn't right, at least not for most human beings. It all depends on the meaning of happiness, which Pinker contrasts with suffering. Now, I next want to go to the, the next page. Uh, where... Can I interrupt you? Yes. Before you... Actually, no, finish your thought and then we'll go back. No, 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 go ahead. Go right ahead. We can get back to what I'm getting at. 
Okay, okay, cool. So I was just going to say I liked Ben's bit of literary criticism that you skipped over, where he he criticizes Pinker for not doing certain things that you could absolutely criticize Ben Shapiro. Oh, for. of course, of course. Yeah. So he he says in a four hundred page book about the Enlightenment, he never once mentions the French Revolution. <laughs> which, sure, like four hundred pages isn't very much, but also like in a in a two hundred and fifty page book or whatever this is about the 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 history of Western philosophy, he doesn't mention the guy who wrote the original history of Western philosophy and. <laughs> Bertrand Russell. <laughs> yes. And and literally mentions the French Revolution just to be like, and uh I didn't like uh Robespierre, so yep. and then also he's he claims that Pink is doing a no true Scotsman fallacy mm-hmm. by saying that people like Rousseau were part of a counter counter enlightenment, which just is a pretty widely accepted fact. Right. Like He's like, oh, he has some similarities, and therefore he is a member of the Enlightenment. Like, no, he he thought the Enlightenment. He hated He's Voltaire. Con- so Russo and Voltaire hated each other. Benny is confusing people belonging to a same time period, right? Which the Enlightenment as time movement. period, yeah. As yes, as the movement, right? So he's saying that because they're all of that time period, they're all Enlightenment philosophers. When no, the Enlightenment is a specific mode of thought rather than mm-hmm. just a time period. I think is what uh, uh, Pinker would say if he got down into yeah. an argument about it. But so but, anyway, carry on. Sorry. But so he says. Uh, remember my paragraph from before. Benedict so rudely interrupted me. I do uh, apologize. Ben continues, follows that by saying, "Quote, but that's not what happiness actually constitutes. Human beings keep showing that they need something more. Man cannot live by quality of life indicators alone. Material human prog- progress in the absence of spiritual fulfillment isn't enough. People need meaning. To which I would say, Benedict." No, not Benedict. Ben, that's a yeah. circular argument. It's true go. if you believe that it's true. Yep. It's so much fun to watch him. Do, and that's not the only time he does it in this chapter. No, far from it. No, I might no, have missed one of them, that. but I, that, he does it repeatedly. It's fun. Um, so he continues on with Pinker for a while. He has a block quote from, uh, it was either a book or an interview that Pinker did. I don't remember, um, where he talks about a, a student asking him something um, and he offers, right, the, the question was, why should I live? And Pinker, mm-hmm. right, has an answer that has to go with, right, well, these are all the reasons why, um, or these are all the, the things about being human that relate to life, and, um, you know, you can seek happiness, all this sort of stuff. And Ben has a problem with that, of course. I don't really care about it much, because now we get into some more fun stuff. Uh, oh, the next person he brings up, Michael Shermer. Um, Who's up? Disgraced former editor of Skeptic Magazine, or maybe he is still the editor, I don't remember. I don't know. Um, Certainly Yep. Uh, sexual predator, horrible dude, who, who at one point, I think a lot of us did sort of uh, think was a pretty cool guy uh, at mm-hmm. one point in our... our <laughs> uh, journey. Yes, our journey. Our journey away from religion, right? Because these are sort of the people you first encounter uh, when you're leaving religion, right? Michael Shermer. Also true of Ayan Hirsi Ali, who mm-hmm. also sucks for totally me. Totally. Okay, you and I, like had a more close contact with her uh, than most people, I think, though. Yeah. Uh, for some reasons. All right. So uh, we, we almost came in physical, or you almost came in physical contact with I her. I think so, yeah. yeah. It was very weird. I don't think you showed up at that conference thingy, did you? I don't, you didn't go. No, I didn't okay. go. Okay, yeah, that's right. Uh, anyways, none of that matters. Um, but then the next person he gets to, Sam Harris. Oh, and what I fucking love about this, what I fucking love about this is basically... He's writing out a debate that he had with Sam Harris, which he which got, he lost. He by the way, so like, bad. Yeah. He lost so bad. Like I remember that. And Sam Harris, this is from 2017, and Sam Harris was already a douchebag in 2017. But like he, I, Sam Harris has always been. But I remember like because that. it was Ben Shapiro, I wanted to see it, yeah. and I remember just thinking, God, 
this shit, Ben Shapiro's stick shtick doesn't work with someone with like a moderate level of intelligence. It's just fucking bad, man. But he does yeah. what he does best, where he cuts out anything that could be bad. And only- bear, bear in mind, by the way, that I uh, I've seen Harris uh, like it, it's funny to watch this because I've seen the opposite happen to yeah. Harris, yeah. where he tried to debate Noam Chomsky <laughs> by a letter, and it just like it's like, what are you doing, dude? Like this man is so much smarter than you. Yeah, it's like stay in your lane, dude. Stay in your fucking yeah. lane. You want to talk about fucking uh, what is he? Uh, cognitive psychology? I don't remember what Harris does. Something like neuropsychology. That, yeah something like that talk about that shit right you did some good work with atheism stuff you had some good arguments worked out you're not going to win against chomsky you're just you're not going to be able to do it <laughs> uh but, but it's so actually uh, before we get to that actually i did i did skip a little or maybe did i did i skip it so it's actually before you get to um the debate portion and i don't want to skip over this because this is so incredible to me um so he has an issue with people saying right that survival uh, gives us the the roots of right creating a, a secular moral system right the the need for survival the human need and desire for survival can give us you know uh, a, a way to get into a secular moral system which I think is an argument that Sam Harris makes Ben uses this example which is outrageously bad to try and knock down that argument and the example Go I'm just going to read it is quote And focusing on the need for survival doesn't beget a workable morality either. Take, for example, a simple thought experiment. You are the leader of a nation. That nation is more technologically advanced and more intellectually and culturally adaptive than its neighbors. Your nation is relatively small, and there are populations that live in your nation that consume disproportionate resources and refuse to integrate into your superior culture. Okay. He's clearly talking about this Israel. This is super racist, he's, by the way. Whoa, he's being super fucking racist. He's clearly trying to sketch out his view of Israel, right? That's, that's clearly what the fuck he's doing. Yeah. And he continues. You are surrounded by more populous and more barbarous nations. Oh, Thus, no. you have two options. First, you can wait for the inevitable demographic swamping of your nation... Which in the long run will result in the collapse of humanity's survival since your neighbors are less adaptable. Second, you can attack your neighbors and take whatever measures are necessary in order to assure the long-term survival of your nation. So it's a a, a targeted first strike is what he's encouraging here, right? Okay, I read that and I don't know which one he is suggesting because he says after that, quote, that was Hitler's case for the Holocaust after all. So... He, I think, my reading of it is, he's saying you can't attack the neighbors because that's what Hitler did. So mm. his argument, it seems like, to me, is I'll allow the collapse of your society? I'm not sure what he's arguing for. Also, just like, those aren't the only two options. Right. <laughs> right. It's, this, look, there are so many problems with that example yes. he gave. It, uh, it, we, we said highly racist. That is incredibly racist because he's clearly talking about Israel and his view of Israel. The people who consume more resources and refuse to integrate are the Palestinians, mm. right? And the more yeah. populous the, and the Muslims nation. generally is, the, is what he's saying. Right. So that is fucking gross and crazy to me reading yes. that I, I i that was a holy shit moment for me in reading this chapter really yeah i highlighted all of that yeah i did too <laughs> but so we'll move on to the next subsection which is entitled is the, the ne- final subsection final subsection is entitled is the neo-enlightenment sustainable and so he continues on here with his Pinker, Shermer, and Harris stuff in this, uh, this subsection of the chapter. Uh, and he argues here that they basically all agree on the same values. He, Shermer, Harris, and Pinker, which probably right since those are IDW douchebags. Yeah. 
And then he goes into a criticism of, well, not a criticism of, but I guess a rejection of all the criticisms that the neo-enlightenment philosophers um, have with religion. Again, because remember, even though he keeps pretending it's philosophy, it's religion he's talking about. Yeah. Where he says that the neo-enlightenment philosophers like to connect religion with slavery. And of course, his response to that is that they're overlooking that the anti-slavery movements in the West were almost entirely led by religious Christians. Ignoring that the pro-slavery movement in the West was also, almost entirely led by religious Christians. Pretty much everyone was a religious Christian back yes. in the day is the problem that you encounter. Absolutely. Here. And the people who weren't Christians, most definitely, like people like... Uh, Did not shout about it. No, they didn't shout about it. They didn't say it. Even the ones, you know, like the deist, right? Fucking... Um, Anyways, it doesn't matter. I mean, most of the founders also pro-slavery. Again, yeah. your be belief in religion does not affect necessarily. It doesn't correlate to your belief in whether slavery is a good or bad thing necessarily. Absolutely. Well, unless you're looking at the United States in the year 2020. Um, well, <laughs> but I think you can draw a clear correlation today. The people who thought slavery was a good thing. His next one he's going to deal with is women's suffrage. Where he says, quote, Good stuff. How about universal suffrage? Again, it wasn't science that supported that notion. It was a belief in the individual born of the Judeo-Christian tradition and Greek reason. Yes, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote the women's Bible to challenge precisely the sexism she saw in the Bible. But in doing so, she cut herself off from influence with the suffrage movement, which reached success by leaving her behind and appealing to the better angels of the Christian nature. <laughs> You just Which have to just talk like, to the people in the right way. Yeah, that really is what he's saying, right? Look, you, you can't change their minds. You have to you convince them. You just have to be them. subtle, and in, in 20 years, we'll take a look. Exactly. It's just like, it's the use subtlety argument, right? She wasn't wrong with the women's Bible. There's a shitload of sexism in the Bible. Read the book of Timothy. Mm, she wasn't, all, all of it. Re, yeah, re, fucking all of it, man. She wasn't fucking wrong. But of course, according to Ben, you know, they only succeeded by leaving her behind. That's It's not like she had a major role in getting to where they were in the first place. Um, and so they... I, yeah. It, it's ridiculous, man. It's and, and moving on to the next bit, I love, I love, love, love. The, the MLK? Bits, Jim Crow where stuff? He's like, where he's like, and MLK quoted the Bible. <laughs> he was a fucking pastor. <laughs> of course he quoted the Bible. Yes, yes. And again, it's pretending that all of that is Western civilization when African-American churches and white churches, especially in the South, have vastly different origins of where their ideas come from, even though they're using the same book. There are vastly different origins of the mm -hmm. teachings and the moral systems of African-American churches and white churches in the South. There's no believing it all came from the same source. That's fucking no, ridiculous. No, and it's... it's, a, it's and that's different cultures build things up in different ways as well, well right? when you like, get down to it arguing that there is a western culture is arguing there's a homogenous culture yeah which, which is obviously fucking wrong. there isn't when yeah every culture has vastly different areas of thought and groups within it there's diversity all over the motherfucking place diversity right. up the ass so this homogenous idea of a western culture we've said it plenty of times fucking rid ridiculous to begin with he does acknowledge a little bit uh, my argument before that, of course, the religious people were on the wrong side, too, where he says, quote, Yes, religious people have been on both sides of those movements. Of course they have, since we live in a world shaped by the Bible. But that's precisely the point. Those arguments have taken place in a common context in which biblical values are held up against other biblical values. Okay. Again, there are no two sets of biblical values. <laughs> and I, I get what 
from, from my perspective where the Bible isn't true, right, there are different sets of biblical values because people, uh, most of the people in the United States, I think, outside of hardcore Christians are what I call buffet Christians. They go up and they see, you know, they see, uh, yeah, they see some see General Tso's chicken. They don't want that. They a see a little bit, bit of, of love and 3, hope. 314 or three. Right. They see some love and hope sitting there. They're like, I like that stuff. I'm going to get a nice big heaping spoonful of that. They see the, the implied racism of the Bible. Bit like, of Galatians. Ah, mm, I'm not going to Some people that take today. that though, Kevin. Yes. Some people take some that. Some people do take that. Right. But that's the point. But from his point of view, you're talking about revealed truth from a divine creator who only has one set of rules. There are not different biblical values to hold up against each other. There just cannot be in that perception of the world. And I know I'm being no. an absolutist, which is what they're doing and what I'm criticizing yeah. them for, but I strongly believe that that just doesn't make logical sense. But we've thrown the rules out because that's how we're reviewing this book. My so Greek reason is telling me that it doesn't make sense to say that there is one set of rules set down by a god, but you can weigh it against other rules set down by that god. Yeah, it just no doesn't make sense to me. So we get to the last page of this chapter. And I will finish as I always do. But and we I think we may have skipped the debate moment, but there was nothing particularly to That's bring fine. up in the debate thing. Go look up the debate. I think funny. it's online somewhere. Yeah, yeah, you can you can check it out. Uh, but I will read the final paragraph as I always do, where he says, quote, Don't get me wrong. I think what Harris and Pinker and Shermer are doing in reviving Enlightenment ideals is spectacular. I agree with a lot of Enlightenment ideals, particularly regarding individual liberty and natural rights, as we've discussed. But the new scientific Athenians will have to make common cause with the devotees of Jerusalem, rather than making war on them. The same, <laughs> the same holds true in reverse, for as it turns out, there are larger philosophical threats to Western civilization that require our attention. Oh, End gosh. of chapter 8, and uh, the beginning of the next page, which we can see as we, we uh, have the last page open, is where he <laughs> was on Dr. Drew's show and refused to call Caitlyn Jenner by the proper gender. So that's the bigger threats to Western civilization yep. we're going to be Good getting stuff. in the next chapter, the final chapter. But, but back to individual liberty. Yeah, I know. I'm fucking delighted. Benedict, how'd you enjoy the chapter this week? Didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's all i need to hear hated it <laughs> thanks thanks for coming oh well anyways uh thank you all for listening we hope you enjoyed the show if you can't get enough of us remember you go over to patreon.com forward slash nygbc and become a patron for as little as two dollars an episode for patron only episode shout outs on the show drawings to win our copies of the books we read and more as always, we have to give a shout-out to our wonderful and amazing patrons, Megan Ruth, Sabi Aquino, Glaurung the Deceiver, Danielle, Terrified Will Be Pecked to Death by Lame Ducks, <laughs> Becky's, that gets you every time, Becky Scott Fairley, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, AJ Brantley, Taru Takanen, Skeptical Seventh, and Andrew Jenko. Thank you all, as always, for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, Imperious Rex! Goodbye. Okay. Goodbye. Grammar's Book Club podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. 
Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.